Let's pray and ask God to illuminate his word to us today. Father, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So as with our eyes closed, we picture a dark room, maybe our own rooms. Perhaps there's moonlight coming through the window or a night light on the, on the wall. Or perhaps we flip on the light and all of a sudden we see our way to the door. And there have been many times where we have been groping about in such rooms, even perhaps in a panic, not able to find the door. But your word, Lord, lightens our darkness and leads us to the door of Jesus Christ. And that is the leadership we require and desire this morning. Would you give it to us in Jesus' name? Amen. I, w- I will be available after today's service, but not to answer questions about gospel femininity or masculinity. Uh, although if that is the burning question of your heart, I'll be up and try to answer it. But um, if, if you would like to stay uh, about five minutes or so after the end of the service and ask me questions about the sermon, I'd be happy to do that. This is um, what I would call an Abraham Lincoln special back-of-the-envelope sermon. Um, I was in my busyness last week and the week before that in New Jersey. Did not have the the leisure time to sit down and compose a full seven-page double-spaced manuscript as I typically do. So I have scrawled on the back, front and back of one piece of paper my sermon this morning. But I have given it already in a devotion that I gave in New Jersey, so I, I sort of know where I want to go, and I trust that God will, will lead us there. Uh, the Word of God comes to us today from the Gospel of Mark. We'll return to our series in Timothy next week. The Gospel of Mark in the second chapter, beginning at verse 18. This is God's word, uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 18, down through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. I picture my jeans there. I have a pair of jeans with a rip in the knee, and I've sewed a patch on or have had a patch sewn on two or three times, and the rip just keeps getting worse. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. As I said, we're in the midst of a series of sermons that are asking the question from a number of different angles, what does it mean for us to be a missional church? And we've been looking at Paul's letter to Timothy. 
and I'm taking a break this morning from that series to turn to a conversation in the Gospel of Mark, which I've just read to you, between Jesus and some people who ask him about the practice of fasting. Before I begin, though, I'd like us to do a little exercise. I consistently show my colors as a former high school teacher, middle school teacher, so if you don't have a pencil, see if you can get a pencil or a pen. And somewhere on your bulletin, I'd like you to draw a picture. Yes, we are a Presbyterian church. I apologize for those of you who are offended. <laughs> this does not constitute a violation of the Second Commandment, so we're okay. Um, a picture. Are you ready? And if you can, don't let your, your seatmate see your picture. Draw for me, please, a picture of a cup. Yeah, that's it. That's the assignment. Draw a picture of a cup. And while you're working on that, let me introduce the Gospel of Mark. It's a very short book. You know, there are how many Gospels? There are four. And they are the first four books of the New Testament. And which one is the longest? Matthew is the longest. It has 28 chapters. Which one is the shortest? Mark is the shortest. An interesting study would be to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting with a highlighter and highlight the word immediately. Mark is, he is just, he, I mean, he, is, he wants to get down to business. Do you know anybody like that? It's like they don't have any time for, it's like just subjects and verbs, you know, or just imperatives, practically. You know, go, come, meh, like that. This is sort of how Mark does it. And so he consistently says, and then immediately, and then immediately. It's, he, he doesn't have any time. It's, it's, a, it's a condensed gospel, okay? It's a distilled gospel, like, like the, the dish detergent that they say you only need this much because it's super condensed. That's Mark. And so, like the first two minutes of a movie, and the Oscars are tonight, for those of you who are, are fans of that, I, I had to throw in something related to movies. But like the first two minutes of a movie, you can really get Mark by the first couple of lines of the Gospel. So by reading the first few lines of Mark's Gospel, we really have a picture of what the whole thing's about, because it's going to be over before we know it. And so what we find then, in the beginning of Mark, is this saying in verse 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's what this gospel is about. It's about the fact that God sent his son in a way that had been prepared. And so the focus of this book is on the, the fact that the way was prepared, and certain people got that, and others didn't. So when we come to Mark chapter 2, the, the chapter begins with, with the, uh, the classic kind of through the skylight, you know, down through the attic, through the reeds on the roof, lowers the paralytic because it's crowded and no one can get. And in that day, they wouldn't have moved aside for someone who was paralyzed like they might today, perhaps. But they would have assumed that that person had nothing to do with Jesus. So they came in through the roof, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. 
And that created quite the stir. And so he said, okay, so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. You're healed. I love that. And the people say, we never saw anything like this. And then in verse 13, he calls an unscrupulous character named Levi, who's a tax collector, and then tells Levi to follow him, and then goes to Levi's house where all the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors hang out. And so, in answer to the question, why are you hanging out with such ruffians, such, you know, the, the scraps of society, the dregs, Jesus says, look, I didn't come to help the people that are already well. I came to help the sick and the sinners, which makes sense. And then we come to our passage in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 18. John's disciples are fasting. And the Pharisees were fasting. We learn in Luke chapter 18, if you want to reference this, that, he's, that the Pharisees are actually fasting twice a week. So they're very scrupulous and rigorous about their, their religious practice of fasting. It's a, it's a ritual that they follow. And the question comes to the disciples and to Jesus about his disciples. Why aren't the, the disciples of Jesus fasting? At first glance, I think Jesus' answer may seem perplexing to us, but a, a few observations can help to set this in the context. John, you may not be aware, but John is a prophet. He's, he, has, he has a uniform of a prophet. So uh, the Bible describes John as being dressed in camel's hair with a belt, and he has a certain diet, and he lives in a certain place. And those things would be features that someone who lived in that generation would know, oh yeah, I, I, know, I know what he is. It'd be like a police officer's uniform or, or even you know, somebody that might wear a clerical collar or something. They would see John and immediately they would know who he was. He was a prophet. But John is a unique prophet in this sense, that of all the prophets that preceded him, he is the last prophet. John, I say is the last prophet of the Old Covenant. And so John is the final one who prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah, the last one. And so as a result, John's ministry has a very unique character. He, both ha he has got a foot in the world of the Old Testament and a foot in the world of the New Testament. And so to understand John, you have to know that about him. And the fasting, therefore, that John's disciples are carrying out has a very Old Testament character to it. It's a, it's a preparational activity. I think this helps to set the context for Jesus' remarks. And this also draws me to want to point out the fact that the covenant that God made with his people, starting in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then renewed again with Noah, and with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and again with with David, and again with all of the prophets, that covenant, that contract, that relationship bound by oaths and promises, that engagement that God made was a preparational engagement. It was preparatory. So God's promises were preparatory for an event that would take place. So everything in the Old Testament, in a sense, is moving towards the fulfillment of these promises, everything. So as you read some of the books in the Old Testament, it's important then to read them with that anticipation. 
how is this passage in the Psalms? Or how is this passage in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament? How is this passage preparing the way for the fulfillment, which would be Jesus himself? That's the character of the Old Testament. And so we see then, not only does John have this preparatory or preparational focus, but so do the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, if you will, conservative, right-wing, traditional maintainers of the, the, the heritage. That's what they are. And they're very, they're, they're upright, they're sincere, they're not liars, okay? They're, they're moral people, they mow their yards, they take the trash out, okay? They vote in the right way in the, in the elections. They have it all. They're, they're doing exactly everything according to code. And why? Because they love the covenant. They love it. They believe in it. They love God, and they believe God. But in their devotion, in their zeal, in their desire to be careful with these things, they have lost sight of the preparatory or the, the, the developing nature of the work of God. And so as they're focusing, just take fasting, for example, as they're focusing on the fast, which was prescribed in the Pentateuch, it's prescribed in the law, as they're focusing on the fast, their focus became the fast. Their focus became the behavior itself, and they forgot that the behavior is pointing towards something else. So finally, in terms of this context that I'm talking about, Jesus presents himself in this passage as the fulfillment of the covenant. Look at it again. It says in chapter 2, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting in people. So other people that were seeing the fasting had questions in their minds. So they come to Jesus why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? I don't get it. Aren't you guys religious? And Jesus says, no, <laughs> we're not. Because the religion that you're talking about is a preparatory religion. It's, a, it's, it's laying the groundwork religion. It's a foundational religion, but it's not, it's not the point. Ultimately, it's going to pass from the stage when the real star of the show arrives. The bridegroom, and by the way, I'm the bridegroom. He says, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? He doesn't say I'm the bridegroom, does he? But he said, the wedding guests, who are his disciples, aren't fasting, and so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think, okay, so his disciples are the wedding guest, and that guy's the bridegroom? Something in the Old Testament, the theme of the wedding, appears again and again and again and again. There's something at the heart of the world, we could even say, that, that wedding is at the heart of the world. It's at the heart of the universe. It's the ceremony, the, the, the introduction of the bride and the, the union of bride and bridegroom is part of the big story of the universe. And so when Jesus claims to be the bridegroom, he's claiming to be the primary actor on the stage of history. <laughs> and so why would they fast in anticipation of the bridegroom when the bridegroom is there? It makes no sense at all. Of course, when the bridegroom leaves again 
And here he's predicting his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and ultimately his second coming. When the bridegroom leaves, leaves there'll be a place for fasting. But it will have a different character than the Old Testament fast, won't it? The days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. So to set this context again, just in summary, John is an Old Testament prophet. He is anticipating the arrival of the one. Matrix, right? Are you the one? I don't know. Jesus doesn't have those kinds of questions that Neo had. Jesus knows he's the one. He says, I am the bridegroom. I'm the whole point of everything that has gone before. And so their fasting is, is, is the wrong thing at the wrong time. They should know. Elsewhere he says, haven't you read Moses and the law and the prophets? <coughs> well, of course we've read it. We've memorized it. And Jesus says, no, you haven't. If you'd read it, you'd known that it was testifying of me. And yet you are trying to kill me. Help me with that. The Bible that you love so much, you're using against me, and I'm the whole point of the Bible. So the ritual practice of fasting was intended as a part of the Old Covenant to point to the fulfillment and thus to Jesus. But they had lost sight. They had lost sight of the whole point. So, like them, I think, we continue to do what we do while forgetting why we do them, do those things. That's, that's, a human, that's something that is a, a human characteristic and, a, and the beginning of an application for us. So I want to give you an idea of where I'm going with this. We continue to do what we do, and we forget why we do them in the first place. Jesus moves then from a specific answer to the people's question related to the wedding to a generic, broad, overarching comment by way of illustrations of clothing and of wine. The clothing illustration, he says in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. While I was reading this, this passage, I alluded to my genes. That isn't actually a good illusion because typically the patch that's sewn on there fails not because of its shrinkage, but just because the fabric of my jeans is so thin that it doesn't hold the stitch. But if you were to put a patch on a piece of clothing that wasn't shrunk, and the clothing is already shrunk, then it shrinks up, and its size, which started out fine before the wash, after the wash, it's all messed up, and the, and the fibers are torn, and the whole point of repairing the, the tear is annulled. And then the other general illustration he gives is about wine. And I'm going to focus on this one. No one, verse 22, puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So the question you should be asking right now is, what does this have to do with the wedding? What does this have to do with, with the specific answer that he's given? He's presented himself as a fulfillment of the covenant. What does this have to do with that? He's presented himself as the whole point of the ritual practice of fasting. Why then does he talk about wine? I think the answer is because people who tend to be conservative, not that anyone might relate to this, people who tend to be conservative tend to be afraid of change. That's what the word means for crying out loud. 
conserve, preserve, keep, maintain, protect. So people who are by nature protectors, and they're in all fields, all academic disciplines, all politicals, all branches of the political spectrum have conservatives. People who are conservatives tend to be afraid of change. They see change as a friend or as an enemy. Change is the enemy. Chesterton, as I quoted him earlier, is a classic conservative. He says, you walk down a road and show me a gate in the road, and you say you want to take down the gate in the road. I say, before you take down the gate in the road, tell me why the gate was put up in the first place, and then tell me that the, why the gate is no longer necessary. And then having proven that, then I'll agree to allow you to take the gate down in the road. It's a classic conservative position. We, we know that these things got put in place for a reason, and we need to know the reason why they were put in place and why that reason is no longer valid before we go along as a conservative, before we go along with changing them. And so I think Jesus uses the wine and the wineskin illustration because he understands that the preservers of the tradition, like John's disciples, like the Pharisees, were conservatives and were afraid of change. And so they were going to reject change even when it was the change that was anticipated and prophesied and predicted in the first place. That's the nature of conservatism is that it is afraid of those kinds of changes even if they're good. Wine symbolizes the harvest of all that is in the law and the prophets. Wine is an Old Testament um, metaphor for the full um, um, ushering in of the fullness of God's shalom, his blessings. And so, if you will, the, the harvest is the preparation for that for that day, the, the, the planting and the sowing and, and the gathering and then the preparation of the wine, all of that is, is part of what is building up to actual enjoying of the wine. So wine takes on this symbolic kind of larger-than-life character of, of kind of the perfection of all reality. So Jesus, by saying wine and wineskins, is saying the perfection of all reality has come. And it's come in your presence in my person. I myself am the wine of the new covenant. I am life. I am fullness. I am the, 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 the fullness of the development of all that has been anticipated. And so in me, then, are, are all, of, all of your preparations pointing. But unfortunately, their wineskins had been filled with old wine. So through their practices, I think they had become pre-stretched, okay? A science, uh, a science explanation is, is called for here. You know, when, when you take the juice of a grape and you squeeze it out and you just set it by itself all on its own over a course of a few days, it pr produces alcohol. That's the natural process of fermentation. And alcohol the production of alcohol releases gas. And I, I can't remember what gas is released. Forgive me, please. But uh, this isn't my science class, so I'm okay there, I think. So as the gas is released, what happens to the container? Okay. So we have six children. And we can't run to the store every day for milk because we practically go through a gallon of milk about every day and a half. 
So we typically buy four gallons at a time. But you can't, um, you can't keep all that in the fridge, at least not in our fridge. And so we pour off about this much of the milk in, in the uh, milk jug, and we stick it in the freezer. Now, why do we pour off that milk? Well, we didn't know that initially. <laughs> so the milk is thawing out, and it's pooling milk in the pan where it's thawing out on the kitchen sink or on the kitchen stove. And I go, honey, why is that? And she goes, I don't know. And I thought, the milk expanded. Because water expands when it freezes. Same thing with wine. When it ferments, it expands. Here's my point. The goal of the Old Testament was not to pre-stretch the wineskins of the people's faith. The goal of the law and the prophets and the Psalms was to keep the skin soft and new. That in fasting and in celebrating the, the Feast of the Atonement and in celebrating all of the different ceremonies that took place in bringing sacrifices, the point was always in doing these things was to, to keep them young at heart, to keep them new and to keep them fresh, to keep them supple, to keep them anticipating the ultimate fulfillment and not to let their vision and their hearts rest on the thing itself, but to always go through that thing, as it, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that in Christ we have a better prophet, in Christ we have a better priest, in Christ we have a better king, in Christ we have a better temple, in Christ we have a better sacrifice. It was never the point for us to trust in the sacrifice, the prophet, the priest, and the king, the temple, and the land. All of those things were, in a sense, to be transparent before our eyes if we're Old Testament believers and to look through them to their ultimate fulfillment. And in Peter, Peter writes that Isaiah longed and the prophets longed to, to see this day. And they saw it, in a sense, through a mist and through a veil and through a glass darkly. But now we see it directly and face to face in the person of Christ. And so the focus was always on Jesus and the soft skins of the wine that, that would hold the wine when it eventually would come. And so when Jesus says, you can't put new wine into old wineskins, it is a rebuke to the Pharisees who had let their faith harden on the prototype and not on the reality. It is a rebuke to the conservatism that had become an end in and of itself instead of a goal towards the fulfillment of all history in the person of Christ. So in that sense, the wine symbolizes the harvest of all of God's promises in Jesus, and the wineskins, I think, are the people of God. And the challenge, then, is to be the kind of people and to do the kinds of things that are capable, literally, that have the capacity to receive and dispense the reality of Jesus' new kingdom. And of course, the whole point is the wine. The point isn't the skin. The point isn't the preparation. It's the vessel that holds, that holds the thing that's to be drunk. And Paul picks up on this theme when he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power might be of God and not of ourselves. And in, and in the third Indiana Jones film, there's a scene the, where he's looking for the, um, you know, the, the communion cup. I can't remember what it was called. The grail. Right, the grail. Okay, so they're in that cave, and there's like 45 different cups, and they're, some are bejeweled, and, and some are golden, and some are platinum, right? And so we're looking, and we're wondering, 
Which one is the Holy Grail? Oh, I, I'm going to guess this one and you guess that one. And of course, the answer is it's the clay cup, right? It's the clay one because the point is what's in it. The point is what's in it. The point is Jesus. The skins serve the wine. The wine doesn't serve the skins. The skins accommodate to the wine and not the wine to the skins. God calls us, as he called the people questioning Jesus, to be fresh wine skins. And in a cynical day, where cynicism not only permeates non-Christians' minds, but it permeates Christians' minds as well, we are all too quick to settle on the rote tradition of what we've done, and the seven last words of the church truly are, we've never done it that way before. <laughs> Sorry, Marty told me not to say that, but... So I'm a missionary. I'm, I'm moving from, from the highly churched southwest to the highly unchurched northeast. And as a missionary, I'm learning about what it means to do God's work in God's way. I've tried for a long time to try to do God's work in my way. Amen? And what I've discovered is God isn't very happy with me when I do that. He still loves me, but he firmly resists that. He's jealous, as the scriptures say, for his own glory. I am the Lord. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the worker of salvation. I'm the one who has wrought redemption. I sent my son to die on the cross for your sins. Serve and worship and follow and listen to me. And so this really is the work of a missionary. And only missionaries, you all don't have to worry about that. That's why I'm up here. That's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> we are called as missionaries to be on God's mission, to carry his wine into this generation, into our culture, and throw a feast of celebration for people whose cynicism has driven out any possibility that there's hope for them in the world. And by, by spreading the feast on the tables in our homes and in our sanctuaries, what we do is we declare to the world, God has arrived in Jesus Christ and there is hope. And we also say, by spreading this feast, that the point is Christ and his wine and not me and my traditions. And in fact, that's the only thing I'm going to hang on to and everything else is an open hand so that we have just a few things that we hold on to as being central to our faith. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that I could never live. He died a wicked criminal's death, which I deserved, and by his own power, raised up from the dead on the third day. And now he lives at the right hand of God and pours out his spirit to enable me to love and honor and follow him. That's the message of the gospel, and that's what we proclaim. And everything else is a wineskin which is to serve that goal. Now, we're not holding on to ancient Near Eastern temple rituals. I didn't see anybody bringing goats or pigeons or lambs into the sanctuary this morning. So obviously, this has no application to us. 
Actually, it does. Because even though we're not sacrificing animals, thinking that that is the sum and substance of our religion, which the, the Christians in the book of Hebrews were tempted to do, even though we're not going to a physical temple and praying for an earthly king, at least not most of us, we are still tempted, I think, with the idea that the whole goal are the, are the artifacts or the scaffolding that surrounds the building or the house, which is Jesus Christ. So look at the cup illustration again. You started out by drawing a cup. Go ahead and show that to your neighbor now or to somebody behind you and, and compare the cup that you drew. They're all the same, aren't they? Does anybody want to show off a particularly handsome cup? Did anybody draw a really big cup? Like take up the whole page. Did anybody draw a little tiny cup in the corner? Maybe you wanted to leave room for notes. Did anybody draw a wine cup? Coffee cup? Mmm. Now was it, a, was it a mug or was it a Starbucks cup? All right, a big mug. Did anybody draw a measuring cup? She loves to cook. Did anybody draw a, a styrofoam cup? You know, just the simple cup in the back. Okay. Here's the point. If you can bear it, tear out that cup and crumple it up. If you're going to save it for posterity, I understand. That cup is not the point. It's not your cup, or my cup, or his cup, or her cup. We are here for the wine. We are here for the wine. So Jesus wants us to give up our cup and receive the wine that he gives us. Now that's hard. For conservatives, that hard. And there's something in the human personality no matter what your politics are, that is a conservative. We need to give up the cup and receive the wine of the new covenant. In conclusion, I, I did this, I, I did this, uh, this experiment in a, in a Bible study that I led in New Jersey last week, and I got to show off my cup. I did a measuring cup too, by the way. So, um, And I had the only measuring cup in the room. And my point was this. My point was to say, let's give up what we think the way it ought to look, the way church ought to look, the way mission ought to look. Let's go to the Lord. Let him lead us, shall we? Let's pray. Father, being missionaries is difficult. It's hard. It means that the things of our culture, things of our preference, things of our prejudice, things of our preconceptions, all of these things and others, Lord, which I haven't mentioned, serve you. And in the body, Lord, how often is it that, that our conceptions and our preferences become points of contention and difficulty and somehow you get lost in the tussle? We do pray as we think about being a missional church that you would help us to be unified in the things that must be believed. And in everything else, Lord, may we be missionaries, truly missionaries, thinking, as it were, strategically and with vision about how we can best communicate to those who do not know.
because we are here to make disciples. We are here for the Great Commission to go into all the world, to all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Renew us in this mission, we pray, in this great wine commandment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.